listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm aware that we have some visitors and guests with us tonight. I suspect many of you are here to, uh, to hear as our guest preacher offers a word. Our guest for this evening is the Reverend Doctor, no less, Malcolm Geit. Malcolm is a poet, a priest of the church, a theologian, and currently chaplain at Girton College in Cambridge. And he's been in Winnipeg in part to lead a, a workshop on the, the work and vision of C.S. Lewis this past weekend and also to share the stage with Steve Bell at a concert on, uh, on Thursday evening. It is a welcome back to Malcolm. He has stood in this place before two years ago on Michaelmas or St. Michael's Day. Tonight we mark uh, Holy Cross Day, which provides a kind of a unique opportunity for the people of God to remember and to celebrate the cross, not in the context of Good Friday, which is so austere, but more in a festal day. So, Malcolm. Thank you very much. It's very good to be here. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. This Holy Cross Day is a, is, is a great day. It's got a long history. It actually goes back to um, after the Emperor uh, Constantine was, was, was converted. His mother, Helena, was determined to find the true cross. And um, there's amazing stories about it, you know, all, it's all in legend. But of course, she looked in all the holy places, not having grasped that Golgotha was the rubbish dump. It was the refuse pile. It was where everything unclean and all the offal was thrown. It was where the so-called self-righteous, you know, put away the stuff they thought was dirty. And that's why the Romans took particular pleasure and uh, deliberate cruelty in crucifying their Jewish subjects there because they knew that the Jews had a horror of the unclean. And that's why God chose to die there for our sins, to go to the place of absolute off-scouring and refuse and rubbish and find us there <laughs> and preach good news to us from that place. So she looked in all the, all the kind of high places, but eventually they found the low place and uh, uh, supposedly they, they found bits of the cross and a little bit of the cross so legend has it, came to England in the 8th century and there's a beautiful poem called The Dream of the Rood. But the day she supposedly found it was, was, was the day which then became Holy Cross Day. And it's great to have that opportunity. And I want to celebrate with you something of the foolishness which God made wiser than the wisdom of men. Um, it's, uh, it's always encouraging for a preacher when he, has, he hears the text saved by the foolishness of preaching, because you think, foolishness, I can do that. <laughs> yeah, so, um, what I actually want to do is to begin with the reflection on that we had a very beautiful, but perhaps over-familiar verse from John's Gospel. So in there was, from a massive tour of car bumper stickers throughout North America, you know, Featuring on many wayside pulpits, you know, John the Evangelist's greatest hit. <laughs> the crowds are calling out for it. Hey, man, is he going to do 316 for the encore? <laughs> you 
We had it tonight, folks. John 3.16. God so loved that. The trouble is, isn't it? John 3.16. People have it on printed on pencils and on t-shirts and, you know, and on kind of plastic coffee mugs, don't they? And it's sort of so smoothly passing through us. It's so wrapped up in a kind of saran-wrapped film of familiarity that we just don't actually get to what's inside it. How do we take the wrapping off? God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It is kind of helpful sometimes to have had a chance, and I recognize it as a privilege, that to have had a chance to kind of figure out the Greek alphabet and make one's way tenderly and cautiously through the New Testament with those funny letters, because sometimes you just get a shock. And in the Greek of this famous text... God so loved the world, the, the verb for love is agapesen, so it's that agape love, it's that all-giving love. It's not the needy love, it's the love that just gives itself completely. God so agaped. But do you know what the world is in Greek? It's not the world at all. The world is a really poor translation. The Greek is ton kosmon. So agapesen ton kosmon. God so Agapade the cosmos. <laughs> That's what it's saying. Everything, the totality of it. I sometimes find it, you know, irritating when, when um, sometimes people, we have a very welcoming, and the church I've served for a long time in Cambridge is very welcoming and inclusive in almost every possible way. And I remember somebody of a more sort of um, kind of right-wing bent having a go at me and saying, I don't know, where you you just invented all this so-called inclusiveness in the liberal 60s. It's got nothing to do with the gospel. I'm going, excuse me? <laughs> I don't think ton cosmon. <laughs> that must be the most inclusive term ever used by anybody. God so loved the cosmos. Every last fragment of it, every possible being in it, even the ones we've not heard of or mentioned, the whole cosmos is mentioned in that. I've tried to express that. I'm, at the moment, I'm working on a new sonnet sequence um, called uh, Parable and Paradox, in which I'm trying to, to go through and reflect on and speak back into and unwrap in my kind of puzzled and delighted and sometimes infuriated, but always transformed way, the sayings of Jesus. And I've given you, I think it's printed on the song sheet, the sonnet I wrote about this. Because, uh, you know, you can't do a book of sonnets on the sayings of Jesus without doing John 3.16. Um, what am I going to do? Well, I looked at the Greek. So I've put a lot of what I want to say in this sonnet. Let me read it to you. So love the world. The whole round world. In Greek, the total cosmos is all encompassed in this loving word. Not just the righteous, right on, and religious, but everyone of whom you've ever heard and all the throng you don't know or ignore. For everyone is precious in his sight, chosen and cherished, Loved, 
redeemed before the circling cosmos ever saw the light. He set us in the world that we might flourish, that his beloved world might live through us. We chose instead that all of this should perish and turned his every blessing to a curse. And now he gives himself as life and light that we might choose in him to set things right. In the turn of the sonnet there, I've tried to express the two things that are going on in the, in the text. One is the utter, complete, unconditional, glorious, all-inclusive love of Jesus for everybody, for everything, for the world. Not for some special category of religious people, not for people who've learned to say a little prayer and now they suddenly have the love of God. Everybody. That's there. God so loved the world. But there is also another half of that verse, that whosoever believes in him, there's a response that he's calling for and yearning for. The love is already there. The response is to a love that's already given. That's what John says elsewhere in the epistle, doesn't he? This is love, not that we first loved him, but that he loved us. Everything we do is a response to a love that can never be earned and is already there. And he comes again and gives us the chance and the choice. And I use the finished with the, the words life and light, because of course they are the very core and beginning of John's gospel. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. It's almost as though this beloved cosmos that he loves so much, which began in that sudden singularity and flowered into being and petaled into time and space, begins again in Jesus. And there's a chance to begin it right. There's a wonderful, I remember in our church in Cambridge, we invited Sir John Polkinghorne, the distinguished um, cosmologist, who's also an Anglican priest, to preach one Easter morning for us. And um, so we're all sitting there, and he gave us an amazing account of the, the Big Bang, the singularity, this tiny thing out of which everything expands, even time and space itself, and even the laws of the cosmos themselves forming and unfolding from this singular event with which nothing else can be compared, and whose echoes we still hear and are forming our very being. And he said, well, that's the, that's the creation, that's the old creation. There is a new creation. And he described the resurrection of Jesus Christ as another singularity, as, if you like, the big bang out of which redeemed nature and the kingdom is unfolding. And we're caught up into it and being changed and formed by it. Life and light beginning again in him. So God so loved the world, the whole round world. Maybe by going back to the Greek, we can think about it anew and it can become slightly less... Sometimes when I see the bumper stickers and when I hear that verse rattled off, I don't know why, but somehow, ironically, it comes across to me sometimes as very smug and very self-satisfied and very much, I've got it and you haven't. Now sit and listen to my wisdom and when I've told you this, then you can belong to the club of people loved too. Whereas the text is saying just the opposite. <laughs> It's actually saying you are already completely included in that love. And of course it takes a lifetime to respond to it. He gives himself as life and light that we might choose in him to set things right. So I want to ask another question 
about the text. I've talked about the world. Ton Cosmon so loved the world that he gave. I want to talk about what kind and quality of love this is. Is it a top-down love? Is it, as it were, a love that looks down from the great heights? When we see that kind of love beginning or being expressed in human affairs, it almost inevitably goes wrong and turns out not to be love at all. The person who is in a place of high status, high privilege, wealth, power, and invulnerability, who would like to love or claims they want to love the person who is in a place of low status, hurt, fragility, and vulnerability. The person who wants to do that from on high without at any point taking any personal risk, without losing their comforts, without exposing themselves to the possibility of failure, as it were, to make a quick, charitable, condescending day trip down to that problem and write a few checks and then sort of retreat up to the castle. That kind of love almost always turns out to be not liberating but crushing, to be not enabling but demeaning, to be not serving the poor, but in the end serving the rich. So much so that all kinds of charity and all kinds of philanthropy and all kinds of genuinely well-meant efforts to do well in the world have got a bad name and done damage. The church is as guilty, if not more guilty, of that kind of helping, especially in the structures of class and the structures of the colonialism, the church has done incredible damage by not actually coming down, by not actually being exposed. Now let me contrast that with another kind of love. When you really desperately, ardently, truly, madly, deeply (laughs) fall in love with someone, really fall in love with them, you feel foolish. Because frankly, you are foolish. You make yourselves a fool for someone you love. You take all kinds of absurd and outrageous risks for them. And there's something about them, because you love them so much, that just opens your heart and gets through your defenses. And the the beautiful and terrible thing about loving like that is that it's such a strong love, you abandon every other defense and security, and you are vulnerable. It's not like you have to sit, oh, it's my duty to be vulnerable. You just are vulnerable. You just rush out towards that person. And if there's something that you have that is keeping you from loving that person or is a barrier for that person, you just drop it and get rid of it. Fairy tales and the plays of Shakespeare are all full of kind of kings and princes who can't love the person they love because they're a king or a prince and who throw away the prince and try to be a pauper in order to love. It's a kind of constant thing. And there's a curious paradox. Let me, as a poet, I, I, I kind of fall in love with words and I'm always kind of wooing words and letting words show me another side of themselves and asking them gently to give a little more than I, they already have. And um, I think I'd been aware of and used and enjoyed and read the word tender quite a lot until one day I suddenly realized that we use the word tender both to mean 
my tender feelings towards you. You know, there's the king singing, love me tender, love me true. But we also use the word tender when you've fallen, scraped your skin and the whole surface is worn away and it's so exposed and raw and sensitive that it is tender to the touch. We put shoes upon our feet because the soles of our feet are tender and they will be hurt if we don't put shoes on our feet. But as soon as we put shoes on our feet, we can't feel anymore. The other tenderness, I suddenly, when I saw these two sides of the word tender, I suddenly saw, of course, it has to be the same word. Because there is no tenderness in the sense of really loving somebody feeling tenderly towards them, without tenderness in the other sense of being broken open and scraped and sensitive and flinching back from the touch. And the more tender you are to a person and loving them, the more you give them the power to hurt you. That's what you're doing. That's what the loving of the trust is. Only a person who knows you really intimately can touch you in the place that really hurts. But only because they can touch you in the place that really hurts can they also touch you in the place that most needs to be touched and loved and known and soothed and healed. But unless you take the risk of tenderness in that sense of raw exposure, there can be no tenderness otherwise. Now we know that to be true in human relationships. So consider this. How might it be if God, beyond all things, above all things, through whom all things were made actually really did love the world and love each one of us in it with that truly madly deeply love, it would pose God an enormous problem. He, he loves us. But if he's to remain, as it were, high God in heaven, the fulfillment and beneficence of all things, the summum bonum, without need, without parts or passion, as the theologians like to say, then his love can never be anything but from high to low. How conceivably could God, who wants to be so tender towards us, tender his love only this way, that he who was found in form equal to God did not cling to equality with God, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and being found in human form was a made obedient, obedient even unto death on the cross. He became tender and open and vulnerable. He became that tiny, tiny little thing in Mary's womb. He went through the pain and the gasping and the crying of being born. And then those of you that have had really, really newborn babies, you know how tender that skin is. And then, as he grew, he kept opening himself out more. He loved people, so he's open to being wounded and hurt by them. He endured, perhaps in our own love and loving, the deepest hurt incurred by our tenderness, which is to be betrayed by a kiss. <laughs> to be betrayed by the person who loved you and whom you trusted and with whom you shared table fellowship. He knew what that was like. He somehow knew that thing that the poet Tennyson later put, that it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. He didn't withdraw his love. Peter denied him. He felt that hurt and looked at him. But he also had that tenderness to restore the love 
But of course, the deepest tenderness of all was to come after Peter had run out in bitterness into the night weeping. When things began to be tender indeed, when they literally flayed the skin off his back and it was raw and tender and exposed. And when finally they nailed his arms to the cross and he opened them wide. From the world and the worldly point of view, from the, from the point of view of strategists, from the point of view of people who talk power and leadership and all that utter crap. What foolishness. But from someone who is truly, madly, deeply, foolishly in love with his own creation, the only possible way of expressing that love. That gesture on the cross, those wide arms, all the robes taken off, stripped naked, utterly exposed, unable to move, turned towards the beloved, open-hearted, even as the beloved offers taunts and vinegar, but knowing somehow that the love can still flow, taking the very wounds that the beloved deals and turning them into a source of more love. That's how God so loved the world, with that extraordinary, foolish love. I'm here, I suppose, partly because of the great happiness of having met and worked with Steve, and through Steve, met Jamie, and it's been an amazing and fun collaboration. And um, Steve's always prompting me to poetry, and my poetry is occasionally prompting him to song. And a while back, when he was thinking about his pilgrimage album, he wanted, he had this phrase from Lent to love floating in his mind. And um, we began to work on a couple of songs together about, as it were, the romance, the ups and downs, <laughs> the opennesses and the closings, and the hurts and the hardnesses and the new tendernesses in the relationship between God and his beloved, which is shadowed forth for us in the story of the children of Israel eloping with Yahweh into the desert, but meets its fullest expression in Jesus on the cross. Did you notice, by the way, the way John name-checked a moment in the desert with Moses and the serpent in the wilderness? It was his way of saying, that story is coming true right here. I gathered my people a little bit in the desert with that sign. I'm going to be lifted up now, and I'm going to make my one last desperate attempt to woo you and to call you back. He's saying, I don't care what you've done or where you've been or what our past history has been. I still utterly love you this much. Come, come, come to me. That's what he's saying. So out of that, as Steve and I talked those things through, came a poem, um, which Steve sings beautifully, but uh, you'll have to put up with me reading it. Um, but I guess it's a song of long tender, foolish, but ultimately all-transforming love. And it's a love that gives expression finally to what we're going to do when we break bread and share wine here. My love is gone away in Lenten lands, gone far away and clean forsaken me. And will she perish in those desert sands? Or will she turn again and come to me? 
I brought her out of Egypt in her youth. She clung to me when we were on the run. She tires of freedom now. She tires of truth and seeks for something new under the sun. The time of year has come when all things turn. The sun returns to warm the wintry earth. The land revives, the plants and seedlings yearn towards their rich beginnings and their birth. And will she turn? Oh, will she turn again? I hold my arms out wide upon the tree. And will she see me yearn to her through pain and turn again and turn again to me? The grapes are swelling on the fruitful vine. The figs are ripe and low upon the bough. I break the bread for her and pour the wine. And all I am is turned towards her now. That's how your Savior loves you and loves you this evening in this sacrament. Amen. been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.